Before I begin in the text, I want to read something to you by Pastor Spurgeon this morning. I want to read this because I think it encapsulates the thoughts of the Apostle Paul as he ministers to the Colossians. So just bear with me as I read Spurgeon this morning, and I know it will encourage you. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The person of the Savior is the foundation stone of our hope. Upon that person depends the usefulness of our gospel. Should someone else arise and preach a Savior who was a mere man, he would be unworthy of our hopes, and the salvation preached would be inadequate to what we need. I repeat it. Upon the person of the Savior rests the whole of the salvation. He is one so loving, so great, so mighty, and so well adapted to our needs that it is evident enough that he was prepared of old to meet our deepest wants. When we preach the Savior to you, we tell you that although Jesus Christ was the Son of Man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, yet was he eternally the Son of God and hath in himself all the attributes which constitute perfect Godhead. What more of a Savior can any man want than God? Is not he who made the heaven able to purge the soul? If he of old stretched the curtains of the skies and made the earth that man should dwell upon it, is he not able to rescue a sinner from the destruction that is to come? When we tell you that he is God, we have at once declared his omnipotence and his infinity. And when these two things work together, what can be impossible? Let God undertake a work. It cannot meet with failure. Let him enter into an enterprise, and it is sure of its accomplishment. Since then, Christ Jesus, the man, was also Christ Jesus, the God. In announcing the Savior, we have the fullest confidence that we are offering you something that is worthy of acceptance. And I would say amen to Pastor Spurgeon's sermon. So now... To amen him, let's turn to God's word that tells us the very same thing that Spurgeon was preaching about there. Go with me to Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. We'll read the text down to verse 15 so that we can see the glory of our Savior and his salvation. Verse 8 begins with a warning that I mentioned last week. Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, he means even you, Gentiles, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, namely Christ. Paul wants the Colossians and all who read this letter to know this Savior that he's writing about here. This morning what we're going to hear is how Paul justifies his warning in verse 8 to be on guard, to look out for these philosophies and these empty deceptions. He says, look out, be on guard against those who distort the truth about the supremacy of our Savior. Paul warns us in a very unique way, very Pauline way. He warns us by comparing the work of Christ and God's revelation to that of the philosophy of all false teaching. He proclaims the supremacy of Christ in this text over the deficiency of man-made religion. The false teachers in Colossae proclaim that man is made spiritually complete, morally clean, and practically conquerors over their sin by following a philosophy or ideology that was based on human traditions, in verse 8, and the elemental principles given them by men who were supposedly inspired by angelic revelations. But in contrast to those errors, the Apostle Paul proclaims the truth. This will be your outline this morning. The Apostle Paul proclaims that, number one, in Christ incarnation, we are spiritually made complete. The Apostle Paul then proclaims that, number two, in Christ substitution, we are eternally made clean. And thirdly, the Apostle Paul proclaims that in Christ's domination, we are securely made conquerors. It's through his incarnation that we're made spiritually complete. Through his substitution, we are made eternally clean. And through his domination, we are securely made, I would say, even more than conquerors, according to what it says in Romans 8. Let's look now at verses 9 and 10. For in him, Christ Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, meaning it has taken up permanent residence in him and him alone. And then Paul writes in verse 10, and you have been filled or made complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And notice in verse 10. This is a past tense statement. You have been already completed in Christ, the God-man. There is no philosophy, no empty deception, no deceitful teaching of these supposed men who have these angelic visions that you need to make you complete. According to, to verses 9 and 10, Paul authoritatively, as an apostle, proclaims that by trusting in Christ's incarnation, number one, we are made spiritually complete. We are made spiritually complete through faith in Christ's condescension, his incarnation, not by 
following the philosophies of empty and deceptive religion. You're made complete through faith in what Christ has done and who he is, not by what you do and what they teach you to do. According to verses 9 and 10, all all who trust in who Jesus Christ is, the God-man, and what he accomplished as our substitute, all who trust in that are made full. They are filled up in him spiritually complete. There is nothing to add to his accomplishments. It is finished. Rejoice, right? In verses 9 and 10, Paul, Paul's turning our eyes to Christ in contrast to the false teachers and the ideologies of this philosophy that they brought in. He says, look to Christ and you'll be complete. Remember who he is. Remind yourself of who he is and who you are in him. If you do that, he says, if you, if you do this, it'll, it'll benefit you. Let me tell you why. He explains it further into the text. And listen, I think if we remember who he is and who we are in him, we will be less likely to fall prey to false teaching and false teachers who proclaim that they have a word from God outside of Scripture. If we look to who Christ is and what he's accomplished, we'll find our satisfaction. We'll find what we need in, in Christ to be complete and mature Christians. We need no other word, no other testimony than Christ. Now, in verses 9 and 10, I think there are three things that the Apostle Paul wants us to remember so we would be protected from the ideologies of fallen men. Number one would be this in verse 9. I think he wants us to remember in Christ. And it's in Christ alone is what's implied here. In Christ alone, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There would be another, no other person like Christ. There would not be another one like him. He is the only begotten Son of God. And all of the fullness, the completeness of deity dwells in him bodily. This is very important when it comes to the doctrine of incarnation. It was God who took on flesh. And what he's meaning in this verse is, meaning basically this, in Christ we find all the attributes of God. In Christ is found God's very essence, and in Christ alone is this found. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form, he says. He doesn't just look like God. He doesn't just act like God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son in the flesh. So his idea is, why are you listening to these men who say they have these, these interactions with intermediary angels when you have God the Son in the flesh that you can go directly to? It's through faith in this revelation that we are filled up as Christians, that we are made full, that we are spiritually made complete. And the reason for that is this. It's through this revelation of God's incarnation that we learn that Jesus himself satisfied all the righteous requirements of God in the flesh for us. All the commands that we were to obey and pursue from the heart, not just externally. Jesus, Jesus fulfilled those willingly, desiring to do the Father's will. And he did that for us humanly. He became our substitute. 
And I believe he did that for us personally. Christ knows his sheep. He died for sheep. He knows them by name. He was living your life for you personally in his incarnation. So what we're seeing in this is we need to remember that we are spiritually complete due to Christ's righteousness, his life he lived for us that was credited to us, credited to us by God's grace. We need nothing else to make us acceptable in God the Father's sight. We have Christ. Remember that. In him, in the man Christ Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt incarnationally to live our life for us. Remember that and it will protect you from any philosophies that come against the truth. Secondly, we need to remember, remember this in verse 10. Paul reminds us that we are made complete. We are made complete in Christ alone. In other words, we need nothing else to perfect what he has started and what he promised to secure. Verse 10 says, you have been filled, completed in him. There is nothing that we need spiritually that we cannot find in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, what do we have? We have direct unhindered access to a holy and righteous God. We can enter into his throne room of grace, of favor, no longer a throne room of judgment, but now one of favor. You are favored before God because of Christ. Do you need anything else? Do you need to add something to his work to make you more acceptable in his presence? No. We have no need of anything but Christ. Through Christ, we have not only direct access to God, we have direct fellowship with God, koinonia, union and fellowship and communion. We can talk to him. He is with us. He dwells in us. He guides us. He loves us. He comforts us. He knows us and we know him. And in Christ, we have not only direct access to God and fellowship with God, we have acceptance by God. We are accepted You and I are as loved as God the Son is loved because of his incarnation, because of his substitution. The love that God has for his son that's reserved for his son and his son alone now by his grace and through adoption has been imputed to us. And now we have the love of God the Father poured richly out in our hearts. And it shows up in our lives. Because now we we know we have confidence before him who will judge the quick and the dead. We know that we have been judged guilty and, and then forgiven by his works and by his righteousness. We are now standing before God acceptable, cloaked in that blood soaked garment of Christ, loved forever by God. Do we need anything else to be complete than this? In Christ, our spiritual life is complete. Remember that, and it will guard you against false teaching. Thirdly, in verse 10, Paul reminds us that everything in our life is under Christ's authority. Everything in our life is under Christ's authority. And not only that, everything in this world, this universe... This creation is under Christ's rule and authority. 
Everything, saints. Notice what it says in verse 10. Christ is the head over how much rule and authority? All rule and authority. All rule and authority. Now, Paul is taking a shot at the false teacher's philosophy about angelic intermediaries. Those fallen angels we would recognize as demons who roam to and fro upon this earth to confuse men and lead them astray that dominates the the mindset of the world that we have to deal with every day. He's talking about that in this text. The God of this world, Satan, who rules the hearts of unregenerate men. He's talking about that. He says, you're worshiping angels? You're listening to angels who really aren't the angels of God? They're fallen angels? You're listening to them as opposed to Christ? Let me tell you something about this. They have no authority. They're under his authority. In context, Paul proclaims that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. Speaking of those spiritual beings who had influenced the false teachers in our fallen world that we live in. I'll show you what I mean by that in Colossians 1.16. They're mentioned there too. Speaking about Jesus as the great creator. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We also see this in Ephesians 6, verse 10. He begins there. I'll read down to verse 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This gives you context, okay? He's talking about spiritual beings that you need to stand up against. You need to be armed against. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is what Paul is referring to in Colossians 2.10. He is saying that Jesus reigns over these rulers and authorities. These same beings that these false teachers proclaim were giving them special revelations. Paul says, hey, let me tell you something. Christ reigns over them. He is supreme. They have nothing to bring to you. Christ has brought all that you need. Listen to him because they will stand under his judgment one day when he reigns over them in hell. They they needed to understand that Jesus Christ, in this Colossian situation, they needed to understand that Jesus Christ was not one of a series of angelic intermediaries that were emanating from God as the Colossian heretics taught. They needed to know that this Jesus that Paul proclaimed was God in human flesh. God of very God, yet in human flesh. This, this Jesus is, as the Old Testament would describe him, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angels, and the sovereign over demons, as you see in the book of Revelation. Church, just think about this. In Christ, God has delivered us out of that kingdom of darkness. He has transplanted us into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. And there we know and we see that our sovereign Savior is going to always be our protector and our guide. We need nothing else to make us complete. 
Christ should encourage us. Christ's leadership and his, his role and who he is by nature should encourage our souls because he is our protector against all these things. He is the one who rules over them. Now look with me back at Colossians 2, 11 to 14. We'll move to our second point. Let me read the text, actually. It says, In, in him, speaking of Jesus... You, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I find this fascinating when I read this. He's writing to a church that's made up primarily of Gentiles. And he's telling them about how, how they need to be astonished that verse 13 says, you who were dead are now made alive. You, you've now been not only made alive, but you've been cleansed. You've been forgiven. You're a part of the covenant people of God. But in the, in the Greek text in verse 13, it actually means not just and you. It means and even you. But then I love it in verse 13 and 14. He talks about them and then he starts talking about us. We're all guilty. We're all in need of this completion in Christ that he provides, and he provides alone. But when you look at this text, especially, I think, verses 11 and 12 to begin with, you can see that Paul clearly proclaims my second point. He clearly proclaims that by trusting in Christ's substitution, we are made eternally clean eternally clean. Let me put it this way. We are made eternally clean through faith in Christ's substitutionary curse and resurrection, not by following regulations and human traditions. That's what he's saying. You're eternally cleansed by God's grace through faith in Christ's substitutionary work, not by following rules, rights, and regulations of men. In verse 11, Paul contrasts Christ's supremacy over our sins. He contrasts that to the weakness of the human traditions of men that are being taught to this church. I love it in verse 11. He says, in him also you were circumcised. Again, he's putting us with Christ at the cross. The false teachers in Colossae were saying that one of the rituals they needed to do if they were going to fully attain Christianity, going to have fullness as Christians, they needed to actually be physically circumcised. But in contrast to that, Paul is saying, you have already been circumcised by being spiritually baptized into Christ's death or spiritually cleansed by Christ's separation at the cross. Paul says this baptism, which means to be immersed, this immersion 
into Christ, our substitute, is about our spiritual union with Christ and about the work of God in us, not what we do externally. It's not about external rituals. It's about the powerful working of God in us by faith in what Christ accomplished through his substitution. In verse 12, Paul says that we were immersed into Christ, buried with him in baptism. We were immersed into Christ. And notice this. How are we immersed? Was it something that we did? Was it something that we had to act upon ourselves to be immersed? Did did your baptism actually save you? No. You were immersed into Christ by the powerful working of God through faith. Through faith in Christ, who he is, as your personal substitute. Paul was dealing with false teachers who, who had to add all these things to their, their philosophy in order to, to make them look impressive. They would show what they were outwardly, but inwardly they were not changed. They had adopted Jewish traditions and rituals to make them look like they were full Christians. But church, we need nothing else to make us spiritually full. We need no outward rites to make us true Christians. And Paul knew full well that the, in the Old Testament, circumcision would never save a person. It never secured your salvation. Circumcision was only the outward illustration that all men are born sinful and they need spiritual cleansing. It was just a type, a picture. Paul tells us, though, in Romans 4, that even that rite of circumcision could never secure a person's salvation. It only testified to the heart being cleansed by God's gracious and sovereign work. Look with me at Romans 4, 4, 4-9. Speaking about Abraham, he says this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It was by faith. That we are saved. The rite of circumcision only illustrated that his heart had been conformed by God's grace, transformed by God's grace. The cleansing can only be done by God, though. An outward act would never make him right with God. It'll never make us right with God either. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 tells us, even in the Old Testament, that God was clear that true circumcision, spiritual circumcision, the kind that actually counted for anything was something that only God himself could accomplish. And it would be accomplished in the true circumcision, the true people of God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will, not might, 
Not possibly, but he will circumcise your hearts. If you are truly one of God's children, one who would be conformed to the image of Christ, it's because he had determined before the foundation of the world to choose you and cleanse you inwardly by his powerful working, not by anything you have done or could accomplish. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, an outward act can't make you love like that. That love comes from a new heart. That love is granted to us through Christ who makes us complete spiritually. We can love God. We can love our neighbor. We can love even our enemies because of Christ. Paul gives us a definition of true circumcision and what it looks like and who performs it in Romans 2.29. It's not done by hands. It's done powerfully by, by the work of God himself, by his spirit. He says in verse 29, but a Jew, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He says, Christians are cleansed, not by outward rites, not by outward acts. We're cleansed by regeneration. We're cleansed by God's intervention, God's sovereign grace coming to us. It's through that that our old self is cut off with Christ at the cross. It's by God's gracious work that believers are cut off from sin's domination and sin's penalty. We still face sin though, don't we? In this world. It no longer has authority over us. But we, we face it presently in this flesh. Right? This unredeemed flesh. But church, know this. It no longer has power over you. Christ has conquered sin for you. You are set free now to worship God. In spirit and in truth. That power that sin had on you and over you was cut off on Christ's cross. And when we come to Colossians, he, he mentions the word baptism. And he's talking about the spiritual aspect of it. And we can talk about the physical aspect of why we do it and when we do it. We do it after conversion. It's not a pre-conversion act. It's something we do that would reflect what's going on in the heart already. It's like the Old Testament rite of circumcision. It should reflect our new condition. It doesn't secure our condition, but it illustrates it publicly. And Paul's trying to comfort the Colossians with this. He's telling them that, that in baptism, you have set forth the truth publicly, that you are united in fellowship with Christ eternally. You're testifying that you were buried with Christ, right? You were raised with Christ now, let me ask you this. Can you get any closer to Christ than that? Do you need to do anything else? Any human traditions or rituals? You were buried with him. You went to, with, the, with him to the cross. Right? Your sins were nailed to the cross. And you didn't stay on the cross. You went in the grave with Christ. And you didn't stay in the grave. You rose with Christ. To newness of life. You can't be any closer than that to him. You were there. The old song that we sing, that we, we hear sung so well. Were you there? 
Were you there? Yes, I was there. Matter of fact, I was there beforehand crying, crucify him. And then I was there with him on the cross by his grace. And I was there when he rose from the grave. And when he ascended into glory, he is now there. And I am there with him, seated with him in heavenly places. We can't be any closer. Our baptism simply reminds us of that. It reminds us that our life has become so intertwined with Christ that it's inseparable. It's inseparable. We live with him, in him. We died with him, with him at the cross. We rose with him. We're seated with him. We can't, we can't separate our life from him. We're complete in him. We have died to sin in him. We've been raised to newness of life in him. So that being the case, why do we need physical circumcision? Why do we need a human tradition? Is it so that we can become more spiritual and closer to God? No, that's absurd. That's what the false teachers, though, were proclaiming here. Church, we just need to remember that we can be no closer to Christ than this. He was our substitute. Our life was credited to him. His life was credited to us by God's grace. And we were immersed with him by God's powerful working at the cross. We were there. And he was cut off because of us. He was circumcised, cut off because he represented us on the cross. God's wrath fell upon Jesus because of us. He was separated so that we could be united. Now look with me at verse Verses 13 and 14 in Colossians. Chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's all past tense. It's not based on anything that you and I do, could do, would do. It was done outside of you. How do you do it? Verse 14. He didn't ignore it. He didn't ignore our sin. He judged us guilty on the cross with Christ. But he did it in a way that was just magnificent. His justice was satisfied in Christ. And we were united because he paid our debt personally. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is going on to say that The result of our union with Christ is we have now complete cleansing. We we have complete forgiveness of all sins. Understand this. Verse 14 says, you and I, by grace, through faith in Christ and what he's done and who he is, we are eternally cleansed. He canceled the record of debt. Once he's decreed this, it is finished. He canceled it. That means it's eternal. It's an eternal cancellation of all sin guilt. Isn't that good news? You no longer have to find yourself begging for God's forgiveness or trying to do something to please God outwardly. He has already given it to you through Christ personally. Through Christ's sacrifice, through his substitutionary death. Paul writes that our sins have been canceled out. That's a fantastic term. You know what that means? In the Greek and in this context, canceled out means to be erased. Permanently erased. 
At this time period, documents and legal documents were written on something called papyrus or written on animal skins, vellum. And they used a kind of ink at that time period that didn't have any acid in it. And so when you, when you wrote on these, these materials, that ink was not permanent. It could be erased. It could be washed away, and that material could be reused. That's what Paul's talking about here. Our sin guilt was written down at the cross, and the blood of Christ washed it all away. It has been erased. We are forgiven, fully forgiven, totally forgiven, eternally forgiven based on Christ and Christ alone, based on his substitution, based on what he did in our place. Paul's saying that even though, even though when, when we were dead in our sins and, and God's moral law condemned us, Jesus Christ died for us. And his blood washed away all our sin and guilt forever. Your past, your present, and your future sins have been eradicated through Christ's work on the cross. Forever canceled by God's grace. God nailed the certificate of guilt, the certificate of death that we had earned. He nailed it to the tree with Christ. And Christ paid our debt. He took our place. He died for us so that we could be made alive forever through his payment, through his satisfaction of God's requirements. It is all of God's grace, though. It's the powerful working of God with him that does this. Church, according to this, we are eternally forgiven of our sins, all of our sins, because Jesus paid our price. He paid that price so that we could, we could not only be rejoicing in the fact that we owe nothing to him, no sin debt is hanging over our head, and we can stand before God's bar of justice knowing that we are forgiven, but also he did this so that we could be made righteous in him. The curse is not just lifted. We have been reconciled to God through him, through his life and his death and his resurrection. Through Christ's sacrifice, we are made eternally clean, and it says here we are granted eternal life. We are made alive. So why? Why listen to human traditions and the rituals of men? What, what human tradition can add to this payment, can add to this atonement? What works can we do that will accentuate this or supplement this? None. This work is unequaled because it's done by God the Son for us. God the Son, holy and pure, Innocent of guilt. Understand this. Here's what he did. The pure one, the holy one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what he did. He willingly absorbed the full weight of God's eternal wrath and fury in our place until there was not one ounce of that wrath for us to bear. We sang a song we sing these songs all the time, I think, here, that, that talk about the love of God, the amazing love of God. But, but the one that really stands out to me is, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Ponder that. Can you add to it? Is there any need to, to perform a certain way, to please him, to, to earn more favor than this? God, the Son, the Holy and Pure One, absorbed God, the Father's wrath, Against our sins, 
And we have nothing to bear but his joy and his righteousness now lays upon us because of this great gift. Think about this. Think about your union with Christ. You are eternally forgiven. You are eternally acceptable in God's sight, in a holy and righteous God's sight. You are now loved and accepted and always drawn to that throne of grace to find hope and favor in the time of need. But that's not all. You're just not acceptable in his sight. There's more to it than that. There are practical implications here on earth. You are also released from the slavery to sin that you lived in so that you can now serve God now and forever. Now you hate the things that you once loved and you love the things that you once hated. You, you hate sin and you love righteousness. When you sin, you say, I, why do I do what I'm doing? And you say, Christ, thank you for what you've done. When you seek God's will, you, you desire fellowship with him. That's the result of this union that you have with Christ, the substitutionary work united you to his spirit. His heart is your heart. He gave you a new heart. He took away the heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh so that you would long for the things of God. That's evidence that you've been born again. You're no longer a slave to sin. But it's not only that that we're rejoicing in here. We're not just acceptable in God's sight, not just set free from sin, slavery and penalty. Understand this, we live in a fallen, depraved world full of enemies. We're promised that we are going to be kept from the evil one. We are kept from the evil powers at work in this world, the false teaching. Why is it that you don't fall for false teachers? Is it because you're so intelligent? No, it's because of Christ and his spirit dwells in you, guides you into his word. You're protected from the evil power of this world and false teaching because of this union that Christ has with you. Christ, it tells us in this, conquers all of our sins on the cross. But that's not all he did, is it? On the cross, what did he do? He fulfilled the promise that's in Genesis 3.15. The prophecy about the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil. He didn't just conquer our sin on the cross. He crushed the power of the serpent, not only at the cross, but it was displayed through the resurrection. Death could not hold him. The wages of sin is death. Christ died yet rose again, testifying that he was guiltless of any sin himself. And he conquered our enemy, in our place. He slew the Goliath of sin, Satan, for us. That story about David and Goliath is about Jesus conquering. Church, the cross has not only eternal blessings for us that believe, but temporal blessings that will protect us who believe. Think about this as we look at this final verse in Colossians. Think about this. The cross, the cross of Christ, which we think of as an ignoble thing, a, a, a frightening thing, a, a sad thing at times to think about. But listen to this. The cross was the triumphant chariot that King Jesus rode upon to crush the serpent's head and secure our eternal victory over sin. The cross is not an ugly thing for the Christian. It's a place of victory. It's a place of freedom. It's a place of hope. That's what we see testified to even here in Colossians 2.15. Look what Paul says. He, 
speaking namely of God the Father, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, speaking of God the Son. Now, you can't separate the two. They're working together in all this, okay, as well as the Spirit. But he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And according to this, according to verse 15, Paul, Paul is joyously, I think joy is just overflowing in his heart when he's saying this. We don't pick up on it necessarily when we first read this, but understand the context. I think he's, he's bringing this all to a point saying, forget these guys over here, these philosophies, these false teachers. Look to Christ. Check this out. Number three, that by faith in Christ's domination, we are made securely more than conquerors. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as if, as if you know, all he did was come to the cross. Listen, saints, he dominates. He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. He's not this weak Jesus who died upon a cross. He's not the humble servant any longer, saints. When he comes again, he comes in glory and authority And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. That should cause us great joy. Paul's saying this. We are made spiritually secure through faith in Christ's conquest, not our works. It's through what Christ did that we are secured. He's saying this, we're spiritually secure through faith and Christ's conquest, not by following extra-biblical elementary principles, legalism, legalistic rules, rites, or supposed angelic teaching. We're complete in Christ. We're complete through his work, through his righteousness, and also through his domination over all these things. In verse 15, Paul's proclaiming that our complete union with Christ should remove all fear of failing to obey some form of outward righteousness, some sort of outward legalistic rules, some extra biblical principles supposedly given to someone by an angelic teacher. Those who proclaim that they are getting revelations from God and you should listen to them and they make you feel small and weak as a Christian, you can ignore their errors. And have no fear of failure because of this. Christ at the cross disarmed all the rulers and authorities of this world, including those who reign in the hearts of false teachers. It says that Christ not only disarmed them at the cross, he's making it clear to these saints at Colossae that Jesus Christ led them in a triumphant procession. That's Paul's terminology there in verse 15. This was a familiar illustration to the Colossians. This describes the way that Roman armies displayed their victory. Understand this. This is what he's saying. You guys know when when you saw the Roman armies come through town after they'd won their victory, you know that you saw their victorious general and he would parade in triumph through the city that he had captured his enemy, and so he took the kings and the generals of those armies and he would chain them up. And he would make them ride behind him or walk behind him, chained to his own chariot. And verse 15, what Paul's saying is this, 
The great general depicted here is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Satan and his demons that influence fallen men and false teachers are pictured as chained behind Christ as he rides victoriously up from the grave in our place. As he testifies to his greatness now and forever, these armies that were defeated are under his feet. On the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan. And he removed his dominion over those who believe. And at the resurrection, Jesus displayed his victory over them was complete. They are now being paraded behind his chariot as a defeated enemy that he has conquered in our place. We don't have to fight with demons. We don't have to fight with fallen angels. We have to look to Christ who dominates them. I can simply look to Christ to protect me in the midst of this dark age that we live in. Paul's saying that if Christ has has done this, if he's conquered so victoriously, so openly that even through the heavens, the angels and the fallen angels alike see his victory, if he's done all that, what in the world are we doing listening to false teachers telling us to obey their teachings or submit to their rules that they receive from these supposed angels? They would say, follow our teaching so you'll have victory over sin. Well, Paul makes it clear, victory over sin has already been secured by Jesus. Christ has already exercised his authority over every spiritual force that comes against us or tries to deceive us or tries to discourage us. Remember what it says in Romans 8. Look there with me. Romans 8, 35. Remember these words. 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's basically saying, even if we were like sheep being slaughtered, it's worth it to serve you, Jesus. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, notice this, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. Paul's telling us here in Romans, as well as in Colossians, this victory that Christ has achieved, this conquest. It is to comfort us by telling us that we are eternally protected in Christ. We are protected, notice this, by the sovereign one. The one with all authority, all powerful. The reigning ruler of all creation. We're protected in his love from all things that would distract us. He's more than just a ruling King. He's more than just an all-powerful sovereign. According to Colossians 2, we can see that he is our personal redeemer. He is our compassionate king who came to us personally at the incarnation to rescue his people, to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of lights where we will be protected, where we will be perfected through his love. 
not through any external rites or human traditions. In Christ, Paul's telling us, we are made spiritually complete. We are made eternally clean, and we are securely more than conquerors. And all this is due to God's powerful working in Christ on our behalf. God's sovereign grace is the reason that we can rejoice this morning. And I pray that's what you're rejoicing over. I pray that as we fellowship today, you will think about these things. Think about all that you have in Christ. Think about who he is and now who you are in him. And let's rejoice in that today for his glory and for our good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for giving us hope in Christ. We thank you for, <laughs> we thank you for eternally securing us. We, we thank you for this, this, great, this great assurance that we have that the one who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, is coming again to display his glory to the world for us. And we will be with him, not, not chained behind his chariot, but riding with him in glory and praise to his name. Because he has conquered all of our enemies. He has conquered our own sin. He has conquered all the spiritual forces that have been at war against him and against us. We have complete victory. We have complete freedom to rejoice as Christians because he has conquered in our place. Jesus, we love you. We want to glorify you in this. We want to testify to who you are and who we are in you by living a life of joy and thanksgiving and obedience as a result of this union. Not to obtain it or secure it, but because we have it. Let us reflect it. Let us testify to it for your great name and for the good of your people, and also for the good of the lost that need to hear about the saving work of Christ. Please, God, I pray, make us that kind of ambassador. Make us faithful because of what Christ has done. Give us fresh courage and joy as we go into the world to testify to your goodness and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.